1: All right, everybody, welcome back to the Equip You Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, I'm joined by our dear friend and sister in Christ, Don Hill. Don, welcome back to Equip You Grace.
2: Hey, Dave. Hey, everyone. It's good to be back.
1: Yeah, it's good to have you. Well, um, I don't know that everybody knows this, so let's just start here. You know, Don and I have been working on a project um, It's going to be Uh, targeted at the layperson for one book. And then um, the second book is going to be more academic in nature. So the first book is going to be, what, like 200 words, and then maybe the other one around 300 or so. I mean, just have to see. But, uh, yeah, I'm excited about that. What do you think, Don?
2: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to to getting it out and, and providing some information for people to think about In a biblical way as far as the modern deliverance ministry is concerned
1: yeah that's good and people may not know that uh just just real briefly before we get into this today and the topic um people may not know this but uh we're we're doing a lot of episodes uh on contending for the word so if you're not subscribed to that show um you'll want to head over there Um, and check that out because uh, that's really where we're talking about false movements and ideologies and and those kind of things. So uh, today, uh, this is actually, uh, this episode uh, really gets to, in my estimation, to the heart of this whole movement. Um, We're going to talk about why Christians should care about and speak about uh deliverance ministry we we've got into this but um you're gonna you're gonna see why this gets to the heart of it as we as we go through so um any any thoughts before we get started with the first example Don?
2: no I'm, i'm ready to to dive in and to help those to try to work through some of this
1: yeah so our our first example is uh derek prince uh you would know you guys know who he is he uh, is a deliverance, was a deliverance minister and a very well-known deliverance minister. And uh, he traveled all over, all over the place, Africa and the United States and, and Europe and uh, anything. Am I missing anything on that there? So um, we're going to l- watch a, a little clip, a brief clip of him talking about um, from Mark 1, uh, one, twenty-seven through 29, and the video is called Christians Can Have Demons That Need to Be Dealt With, so here's that clip.
3: And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. I want to point out to you that Jesus was not first acknowledged as the Son of God or the Messiah. What first attracted people to him was he had power to deal with demons, and that caused his reputation to go all around that whole area. And then we read a little further on in verse uh, 32 to 34. Now, at evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon possessed. Now, demon possessed is a bad translation. And I'm really upset with the NIV, which in many ways has modernized English, that they've gone back to this old fashioned religious language. Demon-possessed. And I'll tell you why I object to it. Because the word possessed suggests ownership. If you're demon-possessed then you're owned by a demon. Now I don't believe that any born again sincere Christian can be owned by a demon. I do not believe any sincere born again Christian can be demon-possessed. But the Greek word that's used can easily be and should be translated demonized and i do believe that many born-again christians are still demonized
2: yeah so with derek prince he is one of the uh teachers of deliverance he was one of the what was called the fort lauderdale five if you look into this um when deliverance ministry came back um or made made it a, a major appearance i believe it was in the late 50s uh when the the this was being um increased in its popularity and so this is not a new thing that's going on. But Derek Prince is is here stating about the definition of the word that's the Greek word that's used, uh, which is called daimonizomai. If when you look it up, and I had to have it pronounced on Google, so I am not a Greek <laughs> scholar, but I do have some things that, that I do in my Bible study trying to understand things better. Because you'll hear the, the reason why we played this clip is because you will hear the modern day deliverance ministers use this very same argument. When they talk about the the distinction, well, we don't believe that Christians can be demon possessed, but that we believe they can be oppressed, and and this is why. And they'll borrow this um, this argument. Derek Prince is not exclusive to this argument. There are others even today that make that argument, um, but there are a lot of the spiritual warfare, neo spiritual warfare, what is what it was termed. If you look up some old articles on this, even in the early two thousands, when people such as Robert Dean and Steve Carter. addressing this issue there are several others that were addressing the concerns with this i want to just pull from one article i have a couple but this one was written by robert dean in 2006. it's from a cts journal in case you don't know who robert dean is he has a really good book him and thomas ice wrote a book several years ago about biblical spiritual warfare it's really good it's it's helpful to read but robert dean uh, earned a thm from dallas theological seminary and studied uh, in their doctorate program, he earned a, a, a Divinity of Ministry degree from Faith Evangelical Seminary, and he's a pastor at Western uh, West Houston Bible Church. So in this article that he wrote in 2006 called Demon Possession and the Christian, he actually touches on this very topic. And I thought this was very interesting and helpful, and I'm sure Dave will offer some other insight too because we've been finding some interesting information about this. So the meaning of daimonizomai Uh, Robert Dean says, this Greek word is a participial form of the more commonly used noun for demon. Scholars usually translate daimonizomai to be possessed by a demon, or when it is used to describe a person in that condition, it is rendered demoniac. The word is used 13 times, all in the Gospels. Now, there's one other um, article that I found just really briefly by Steve Carter about this same topic, and he cites that This same word is used 13 times in the Gospels, and he says, of those times, um, six times, it is in reference to the Gadarene demoniac. Um, And I'll just read that passage here real quick and then talk a little bit more about what Robert Dean said. Um, Mark 5, for example, um, of the six times that this Greek word is used, daimonizomai, Mark 5, verses 3 through 5, says, this man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. And both of them recognize the fact that this is a typical case of demon possession. Um, And there's other references in Matthew, Luke, and John, not using the same word, but along the same lines, that mean to have a demon. And the Greek grammar, Robert Dean says, conveys the idea That the subject is characterized by having a demon indwell him Um, he says since no systematic definition is given in the bible for demon possession the best way to define the term is to examine the characteristics in biblical examples that define for us these words from these two terms we see that someone demonized such as diamond needs of or who is said to have a demon which you will hear that term used by modern deliverance ministers in, in separate from that word, separate in other terms from other in other passages, it, this is a person who has one or more demons dwelling within him, um, and that's the, the the distinction that they make with that. And what Robert Dean goes on to say, I'm not going to read the whole article because it's a very good article, and I can get the link so Dave can can share that in the um, description if he chooses to do so, because it's a it's a very helpful article. But he talks about the fact that essentially what's happened is that the word has been watered down the definition has been watered down by those who hold to the teaching that christians can have indwelling demons and furthermore he says um, the major feature here is control we must ask if possess is an adequate english term to convey this meaning According to one group, possess is inadequate because it conveys the idea of ownership, which is one of several meanings for the noun. However, the Oxford English Dictionary lists as the first meaning of the verb possess of a person or body of persons to hold, occupy a place or territory, to reside or be stationed in, to inhabit within or without ownership. The primary meaning for possess clearly accords with the evidence of the biblical events. Therefore, the case for rejecting demon possessed as an accurate translation of the Greek is without support in either Greek or English lexica or the biblical usage of the term itself. So again, it would seem, and like I said, there's several articles that are helpful on this, but it would seem that there is a watering down of this definition in order to allow For this practice of saying to cast out demons out of a person and then you're dealing with the whole issue which i know i've made a comment before the compartmentalization of a person the tripart being and um that's a teaching within word of faith believing in a trichotomy is not a salvific issue having said that i think that that's borrowing from the word of faith uh, in my opinion in order to validate the deliverance ministry today because they'll say, well, demons can't live within your spirit, but they can live within your soul or flesh. There's no text that actually says that or validates that. Um, and if anything, it would seem that scripture is validating that the Christian's battle with the, the demonic is, is an outward battle. It's not an inward battle.
1: Yeah, that's really good. I mean, some people would object you know, immediately, and I, and I know the objection is coming. Well, Derek Prince never taught that Christians could be demon-possessed, but notice what he said. He said, yes, he said that a Christian can't have uh, a demon, but he said that they can be demonized. So, I mean, it's really semantics at that point. You're saying on one hand that a Christian can't have a demon. They can't be possessed because they have the Holy Spirit. Which is true, but then what they say? Then he says that they can be demonized. But in but in other teachings that he's given, like in the War of Heaven, God's epic battle with evil, uh, published in two thousand three by Grand Rapids, he claims that we, including Christians, have any unconfessed sin that in that area we do not have the full legal rights of redemption satan still has a claim in that area he has a legal right to occupy that territory the devil is a legal expert and i mean i can give you a dozen other examples from his own words his own work um that that demonstrate that he thinks that that christians can be demon possessed because if you give legal rights to if a christian can give legal rights over to you know satan then then here's a couple things just a couple of thoughts one um you're get you're surrendering your your security in Christ well we don't have any we don't we don't hold ourselves fast cuz we belong to Christ and Paul makes that abundantly clear in Romans 8:31 through 39 where he some five or six times talks about if you read it the work of Christ on our behalf You know, it's always it's what Christ did, and then you know it's a it's a matter of our security. Um, It's what Christ did, and then He talks about how we're held fast. Um, So you know, it's it's just interesting, Um, and we're gonna we're gonna come back to this uh, towards the end. But it's interesting, even at the opening, here's a guy, on one hand, he says a Christian can't be possessed, but a Christian can give legal rights over, which means that the Christian has no security. Um, They have no, and if you don't have security, then how are you supposed to grow? um and then and then what do you do with like a passage like john 15 and what do you do with the passages like second peter 318 which commands us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the lord what do you do with all the commands given in paul's epistles i mean it's just uh not only that but it makes our forgiveness as i've said in other places it makes our forgiveness uh conditional rather than secured based on the once for all sacrifice which hebrews uh very clearly proclaims because Jesus is our substitutionary um, sacrificial lamb who paid the penalty in our place and for our sin and was buried and rose again. And, you know, I could go on and on with this for a long time, but, you know, th- this, these, are the, these are the issues it makes that makes the focus not on the personal work of Christ, who, as we'll talk very clearly about here soon in this episode, um, who conquered Satan at the cross who fulfilled um genesis three fifteen, and uh we see that we're gonna see that very clearly as we go but the the thing is 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 you know where's the focus the focus seems to be on a demon the focus isn't on christ the focus is on um these things and what the christian is is, is being possessed by being owned by um rather than they're owned by christ so christ isn't all christ isn't sufficient christ isn't enough scripture isn't enough and and again they can explain it in in a thousand different ways and they have trust me um but at the end of the day they they all seemingly borrow in my estimation they all seem to borrow from this general argument that Derek prince lays forward and it's just not persuasive it's just not persuasive um, there's no exegetical warrant for it and even even if let's say we'll grant, okay, there's some maybe perhaps evidence, which I don't think there is. But even if we grant that, there's even more problems theologically because you're saying that our union with Christ is is not just just uh, dis- our fellowship with God is, is is not just impeded or disrupted, but that our security is impacted. And that that means that there is no ability for the Christian to grow, um, ultimately to be glorified, ultimately to go and to persevere until the end and go to be with Jesus in heaven. I mean that that's that's where this view goes, and it's interesting. All they do is talk about once you hear about the idea of legal rights that they can give over or give permission or you know they give a, a place or whatever. As we'll talk about towards the end, we got an example for that this is just an example of the argument that that it goes and it's it's a literal impossibility because um we use the word justification that is to be declared legally not guilty it's a matter of in the court of law where a you know a a criminal would be declared guilty and that judge would be right to declare them guilty well that's us in 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 but we've been forgiven only because of Christ. But legally we de- we deserve according to Romans 3:23 and 6:23 what we deserve is we deserve death and hell. And yet what God gives us is in verse 24 of of Romans 3 and in verse 24 of of Romans 6, he says that we we uh get the free gift of God's grace through the person and work of Christ.
2: Oh, I, while you're talking, I was thinking on a couple of things. That uh, that I had recently been considering with the whole deliverance stuff. For example, in Ephesians 2, one where uh, Paul is talking about, you know, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And let me get to that real quick uh, because I just now happened to think about it and was pondering on it the other day when I was reading it because I thought, huh, I hadn't really thought about that before, but just the wording of it made me ponder says and now and you were dead in trespasses and in sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience well paul is making a distinction there in ephesians 2 it would seem that he's talking to believers and he's reminding them of their previous state of spiritual death in sin their bondage to sin their enslavement to sin, and that they were under the tyranny of Satan, essentially. They were under the dominion of Satan. And it says, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Well, born-again believers are not sons of disobedience. (laughs) So how can a spirit that's affiliated with the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan, how can that be related or correlated to, to a believer? The other thing I wanted to, to mention, too, is um, when you were talking, Dave, and, and saying th- about the, the deliverance and what they say, it reminded me of being in the Word of Faith movement and the charismatic, in the areas of the charismatic, because I know not all there are some people that consider themselves charismatic that they do not agree with some of these things. Um, so I don't want to lump everybody into the same basket with that but i do know that with um the word of faith teaching and in some ways um i had heard for a long time as far as for example sickness was concerned well god doesn't put sickness on people you know he only gives good things He only gives good gifts so he's not gonna he's not gonna allow sickness and he's not gonna allow that well why then why are you okay with saying that he allows demons to indwell his own children that just seems counterintuitive. It doesn't agree with Scripture. It seems counterintuitive to me. And now it's making that allowance. And and again, it goes back to an argument we've made in the past of a focus on the sovereignty of Satan versus the sovereignty of God. So now it's the remnant over here that's supposed to be operating in power versus Satan. And it's and God just left us with all this power and authority, but still we're not walking in that power and authority, so we've got to do all of this stuff and jump through all these hoops and do all these things in order to operate in this power and authority. I don't know if my my train of thought is making sense here um but I, I just happen to sit here and think about that of for years I heard with healing you know God wouldn't do that he wouldn't he wouldn't uh that he wouldn't break that's child abuse he wouldn't break uh his own child's leg to to teach them a lesson or anything. And yet, they're these same people will take this with deliverance ministry, and they'll say, "Well, ch- well, Christians can have indwelling demons well, okay, So you're negating your argument for healing and then you're making Satan sovereign. So am I making any sense with that? I know that this was not on topic, but
1: <laughs> no, no I'm just having to
2: think about that <laughs> no,
1: that's that's really good. and And by the way, um no, that's that's really good. and just to draw this out even more in uh derek prince he says speaking of the patient and they shall expel demons page 14 to 16. uh, the following are required for deliverance humility honesty confession fourth renunciation and notice it fifth forgiveness then he says when the patient has met the five conditions only then are they able to claim the promise of joel 232. whoever calls on the name of the lord shall be saved So calling on the name of the Lord, he says, sets in motion the process of deliverance. So, I mean, again, you know, it's like you're saying, we know what, we know what scripture says. We know that Satan has a limited sphere. He can't be everywhere. We see that very clearly. If you're wondering where that is, it's very clearly spelled out in Job chapter one. All you have to do is read Job chapter one. And you can understand that Satan is not everywhere and all present. Um, And even there, he's under the sovereign hand of God. So Satan is not sovereign. He does not know our thoughts. God alone, Scripture says, knows our thoughts. He knows our, God knows our motives. Satan doesn't know our motives. He, 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 everything, we see this very clearly. We'll just say it really quick. Everything that that god does satan count aims to counteract you know so every time god says uh, s- satan is saying hey here's a little bit of, here's a little bit of the truth but he misses the rest of it so it sounds good that's why we have to be as acts 17 11 says we have to be bereans we have to search scriptures to see if these things are so this is why we have to deal with the substance of what is said because, because some people think some people think that this is all just splitting hairs and it doesn't matter. but the thing is is that when the Word is rightly handled, as, as, as is command in, in 2 Timothy 2:15, when the Word is rightly handled, the people of God are helped. When the Word of God is not rightly handled, then the people of God are not helped. The people of God are confused; they're deceived, and and the Bible has a lot to say. Just go read Jeremiah and Ezekiel, for example, about what God thinks about false shepherds who lead people away from the Lord. You know, so you know, crafty and cunning arguments are just that—they're crafty, they're cunning. Uh, but do they stand up to close scrutiny? Scrutiny under the lens of the word of god because the, the thing is is even jesus we get the word biblical interpretation from the the way in which he interpreted the scriptures so even jesus he says over and over again um you know at, at, in the desert he says it is written right so um jesus believed jesus even used the tense of a verb to prove the validity and the authority of god's word from the old testament so i mean i could go i could go on and on here but the point is is the interpretation that prince is going to offer and then that we're going to hear moving forward it, it doesn't follow it doesn't stand up to the scrutiny of god's word it, it, words have meaning if words don't have meaning then we got a whole pro, we got a whole nother conversation that's a whole nother conversation but but both don and i we believe that words have meaning and that the word of god has meaning and so we better inter- understand what that meaning is. And when we understand what it means, then we can expose, as we're doing, the, the whole reason that we can expose it is because they have a wrong interpretation of it. And, and the right interpretation is important because it shows that we believe the Bible, that we trust the Bible, that we're not quoting it out of context, that, and that we're not quoting anybody out of, out of context either. Um, You know, you can call us on that. If you think that we're quoting people out of context, that we're not dealing with substantive arguments, I invite you to email me. But go and listen to their own words. This is why we use clips. This is why in the book there'll be so many citations and so many scriptures um, dealt with in in a right way um, in context. So
2: all right so this next clip that we're going to take a look at and talk about uh it features isaiah saldivar and he's talking about uh deliverance ministry so let's see what he has to say
0: how can a christian who has the holy spirit also have a demon
4: yeah so this is a major question that we can probably go along on. we won't take a lot of time on it but i tell people all the time a christian could have whatever they want like they say a christian can't have a demon and i'm like what else can they not have? Are they not allowed to have a donut? Are they not allowed to have a coffee? Like a Christian can have whatever they want. When you get saved, you don't all of a sudden get a license to live however you want and be protected. In fact, (laughs) God never protects people in disobedience. So if you open a door, like if I open my front door right now, I don't get to say if a fly flies in, you're not allowed to fly in here because the door is open. A fly can come in, a wasp can come in, a rat can come in. If you leave the door open, stuff can come in, whether you're a Christian or not. So a couple things we have to ask ourselves. Number one, is there any scripture that says a Christian can't have a demon? Because at the end of the day, my stories or my experiences don't matter. What matters is what does the scripture say? So is there a place in scripture where the Bible says you can't, a Christian can't have a demon? And the answer is no. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says a Christian can't have a demon. In fact, the Bible would point to and allude to the fact that deliverance is actually for Christians,
1: actually for the believer. So I want you to hear what he just said. He just said that, you know, a Christian can't have a demon. But then he just says that Christians need to do deliverance. So, what is it? And then he just argued for what we talked about about legal rights. He just literally made an argument for legal rights. So, this is what we call a contradiction they say one thing and then they, you know, say another. So, Don, any thoughts on that before we, you know, get a little bit further or um, anything like that?
2: It, well, I've listened to him say this before uh, and and watched that video. And what you'll hear, first of all, is he'll say, well, there's no Bible verses that say that Christians can't have demons. But then he doesn't provide any that say that they do. He only makes the blanket statement of, well, there's, there's several that seem to point to the fact that Christians can have demons. Well, I would like to know what they are. Um. And The second thing is, is that he said he makes a true statement. But if you listen to the whole video, he doesn't stick to what he says. So he makes a statement of saying, you know, it's, we shouldn't appeal to our experiences at the end of the day. We have to go back to scripture. But if you really listen to that video, he does a lot of appeal to personal experience. He does very little appeal to um to to scripture in in the proper context. I mean, he even in that same video, he promotes having. Deliverance maintenance done every two to three months and he and he compares it to getting your um, oil changed in your car. He says things like that in, in that video in order to say what he believes a person should do, but that's not found in scripture he he appeals to his own understanding and thinking about it, and my question would be you know what what kind of freedom is found in this if you're telling someone that they need maintenance done or that they could have indwelling demons and then he compares he's comparing basically a blood-bought born-again believer who is now the temple of the holy spirit to opening a door and letting rats in and roaches and and all of these vermin into um, what is the temple of god And I understand that to a point to be fair I understand that he's trying to get the point across that you can't live however you want as a as a believer. And that's very true. You can't. As scripture tells us, we are not our own. We have been bought at a price. We are to glorify God in our bodies. We are to to, to glorify God in our conduct and everything that we do in word and deed. And that is not done in perfection. That is that is where sanctification comes in, which I would argue is not talked about very little, if any, from these deliverance ministers. It's always the focus of, well, you have this demon grouping in you, or this demon's lurking in you, or you need this this spirit cast out of you, or out of your bloodline, or out of your DNA, or out of your body part. That's the solution. It's not biblical discipleship. It seems to, they they continue to put out videos and make this point, and they're fighting to the to, to the to the death with this. Of Christians can have indwelling demons, and I just don't see the freedom in that. I don't see how Christ is glorified in that. Uh, I don't see how he he's ignoring that salvation is deliverance. So there continues to be this need for deliverance continuously from demons, and 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 I just think how how is that freedom how is that freedom to the believer how is that how is that glorifying Christ in the finished work that he did that he he defeated Satan at the cross he defeated Satan Satan is defeated in the life of a believer this is good news because Christ is our victor he is our champion he is our savior he is our king he is our high priest he is the one that has conquered and he has delivered us. He is our deliverer. And even though they'll say these things at times it just seems it seems the emphasis is on you have to do this. You have to be your own savior essentially. And then it becomes works-based salvation and that it's devastating. I mean, we we talk to people all the time that are coming out of this. I talk to women on a daily, I'm not kidding, a daily basis. that email me, reach out to me. I talk to some of them on the phone, perfect strangers that reach out. And the level of abuse that's going on, the manipulation, the confusion, the twisting of doctrine, uh, uh, the questioning faith of questioning everything and having to, to try to walk alongside these women and to try to help them find a biblically sound church, try to untease the knot, if you will, if like a ball of yarn. I told Dave a good analogy, the best way I can describe it. It's like a ball of yarn that's been all knotted up. And if you've worked with yarn at all, because I'm a knitter, I haven't knitted in several years because I have young kids. But if you've knitted, then you know what I'm talking about. Well, if you get a ball of yarn that gets knotted up, it's a nightmare to try to untangle it. And that's what I like in coming out of this type of movement too. It's like a ball of yarn that's been knotted up and you got to tease out the yarn of the knots without destroying the whole thing and it does damage it's not bringing freedom I'm I'm sorry to go on on that but it just it doesn't bring freedom to people this is not freedom and this is not honoring Christ when you're telling people you need deliverance maintenance you're you're just opening a door letting rats in and vermin in and you're doing all these things over and over again we're told in scripture look to Christ Keep your focus on him. He is your hope. He is your deliverer. He is hes the one that brings you freedom. He's the one that has given you peace with him. And he's the one that sustains you and he delivers you and he strengthens you. But that's not the message. Uh, I appreciate the zeal that they have, but it's not the message that, that, that they're broadcasting. The, the gospel is, is such good news.
1: Yeah, that's really well said. You know, and this is the problem. Like you're touching on, they they appeal to subjective ex- experience, which is which is what we've yeah. been talking about this whole time. They they uh, are. It's all about my testimony. So you, you see this with the Domino revival. Everybody had a you know a, a testimony of how the Lord worked in their life. But where's the Word of God? Uh, where's it being tested? Their experience being tested by the Word it's not there yeah and that's what these proponents of of this uh deliver modern day deliverance ministry do it's all about my subjective experience um and yet the the scripture very clearly tells us that we're to do what in first thessalonians five twenty one test all things and to hold fast to what is good so Um, that's what we're going to do here that's what we're going to do in the book that's what we're going to continue to do when they make claims when they go to the scripture the way they use the scripture we're going to keep in we're going to keep uh talking about that but um just to be crystal clear on our end you know there is no clear example in the bible where a demon ever inhabited or invaded a true christian uh we never see that Never in the New Testament epistles are believers warned about the possibility of being inhabited by demons. Neither do we see any rebuking, binding, or casting out of uh, of a demon of a true Christian. The epistles further never instruct believers to cast out demons, whether from a believer or an unbeliever. Christ and the apostles were the only one who cast out demons. Every instance the demon possessed per people were unbelievers. So. uh, scripture is very clear that demons can never spatially indwell a believer uh, despite what we're going to see here in just a minute uh, the claim so i'm going to anticipate that claim and i'm going to answer it but we're still going to listen to it but a clear implication of second corinthians 6 is that the indwelling holy spirit could never cohabitate demons let's look at that real quick it says, What harmony has Christ with Belial, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever, or what agreement has a temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Well, in Colossians 1.13, Paul says that God delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he transferred us into the domain of his beloved Son. So we've said this before, salvation brings true deliverance and protection from Satan in Romans 8 37. Paul says we are overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly conquered through Christ. In first Corinthians 15, 15 7, uh he, God says he gives us the victory. In 2 Corinthians 2, 14, he says God always leads us in triumph. In 1 John 2.13, John says we have overcome the the evil one, and in First John four four, he says the indwelling uh, Holy Spirit is greater than Satan. So these are glorious truths, and so how can you affirm those truths and yet believe demons can indwell genuine believers? And yet this is exactly what um, these you know uh, professing Christian uh, teachers, pastors—they're all uh, pastors. They teach, and so um, you know this this causes a uh, a number of problems, uh, as we've talked about, uh, biblically, it causes problems theologically because it, like we just talked about it, it does away with sanctification. Um, and, and, and the other thing that he didn't mention, he said he didn't even talk about, since he's talking to the Christian, he didn't, he minimized, um, the discipline of the Lord, you know, that, that Hebrews talks about. And what about, what about that? You know, so, You know what about the role of the holy spirit and sanctification and so just to wrap this very brief explanation up you know when the holy spirit inhabits a person no demon can set up house as a squatter and dwelling by demons is only evidence of a lack of genuine salvation
2: yeah i would agree
1: so we we have a we have another example that that will actually um draw this out just a little bit more
2: so the next clip that we are going to look at comes from vlad savchuk and again he's another proponent of deliverance ministry that we've talked about before but we're going to hear him talk about uh trying to refute that christians can have demons
5: Christians can't have demons because the Holy Spirit cannot coexist with demons. Because the Bible says that light and darkness does not coexist. The Bible doesn't say that. In 2 Corinthians 6, 14 all the way through 17, Paul is talking about believers not being unequally yoked with unbelievers. And he's saying that light and darkness doesn't have fellowship. Righteousness and lawlessness doesn't have communion. He's not talking about coexistence, he's talking about covenant. And he uses that to encourage Christians not to date unbelievers. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you know Christians who date unbelievers? Yes, we do. So it's possible to do that. It's also possible to have light and darkness live in you. Why? Because a Christian can choose to yield their life to darkness. That's why the Bible tells us not to give place to the devil. If we were not capable of giving him place, the Bible would never warn us to not do that. As a Christian, you can have demons, but demons cannot have you. And because you have the Holy Spirit, you can experience freedom and deliverance in your life today.
1: You know, I have I have a lot of thoughts on that. I, I've already dealt with the 2 Corinthians passage, and we very clearly saw that, you know, it's not possible that a Christian can have a demon. But I, I, I was just thinking as that was playing, and I, I'll tie this in, you know, the reason that we, we talk about this is really given by Paul in Second Corinthians 2 Corinthians 2.25 or 24 and 25. Where he says and the lord's servants must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone able to teach patiently enduring evil correcting his opponents with gentleness that god may perhaps grant them to grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will and the reason that i i mentioned that it is we're, we're doing this as paul said a correcting opponents opponents of the word of god now some of what vlad said you know there um you know some of his understanding of that particular passage is is good um you know we shouldn't marry uh, or be in a, in a relationship as a born-again christian and dwelt by the spirit with an, with a non-believer you know that the passage is very clear about this but he he says that a christian has light and darkness in them. And just, and I, and as I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking, well, then uh, scripture interprets scripture. So First John uses the comparison and the contrast of light and darkness. Um, and the light represents, you know, when we confess our sins, John says, and if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If, and then he says, uh, I believe it's verse uh, six or seven of, of chapter one, he says if if we you know sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us that's darkness so for the christian they are to walk in the light um, because they belong to the one in jesus who says he's the light of the world and so um this is a this is not a even a this is not even a plausible explanation that Vlad just offered. It, it, it uh, does damage to the text because it makes a suggestion that Christians do have demons, despite what he said, again. Um, because, again, words have meaning. And, and using words, when we use words, especially when preachers use words, and I'm just going to say this as a preacher, um, when preachers use words they use words to convey meaning the meaning it doesn't originate from them the meaning is to originate in god's word we only have authority to say as christians what god has said and and to rightly handle the word of god and so we have to do that um and especially a pastor acts 20 uh paul commands the elders at miletus to preach the whole counsel of god and of course we know in second uh, timothy 4 Uh, timothy is commanded to preach the word and so uh this is egregious um that he is saying this and it's not even the most egregious thing that vlad has said so um again uh this this passage doesn't mean what he said um if we look at just just i just use one example first john um he's not saying that the if he means to be clear, if he means that we can have indwelling sin, that's one thing. But he's not saying that. He's saying the Christian has light and darkness, and nobody knows what that means. And so what that does is it spreads not help, you know, because as Christians were Ephesians 4 29 commands us to speak edifying words and words that build up. There's nothing edifying and nothing upbuilding because there's nothing in his explanation that ultimately um explains and deals with the text instead people are um instead confused and not helped so um what are your thoughts Don?
2: yeah i just happen to remember in ephesians 5 and i know we're talking going to be talking about ephesians 4 at some point in the in the, this episode but ephesians 5 actually touches on this light and darkness as well um in ephesians 5 paul is uh, using one of the chapters in Ephesians, the, the last three, to my understanding, are dealing with the application of being a Christian. Um, the first for, first three, he's talking about uh, what Christ has done. And the last three, he's talking about how we are to be in Christ. And um, it's it's beautiful. I'm, I'm starting a Bible study on this right now that Susan Heck has done with one of her books. And um, it's I'm really enjoying it so far. But Ephesians 5 um he's talking about walking in love. And I'll pick up um, in verse six, uh, Paul says to the, the believers in Ephesus, let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. And I just want to read this in my study Bible here for that verse, where it t- in uh, Ephesians five eight darkness here describes the character of the life of the unconverted as void of truth and virtue in intellectual and moral matters and it's cross-referencing what you were uh, talking about they first john chapter one verses five through seven and it goes on to say the realm of darkness is presided over by the power of darkness um, citing luke twenty-two fifty-three and colossians 1 13, who rules those headed for outer darkness tragically sinners love the darkness it is that very darkness from which salvation in Christ delivers sinners. So again, I mean, um, like Dave was saying, Scripture interprets Scripture. When someone says something like that, yeah, it may sound really good, but he his message was void of sin. That's the that's what we have to understand as believers. We've been given power over sin. Doesn't mean that we walk perfectly because we're not delivered from the presence of sin yet in this world. So we're still in the presence of sin. The difference between us and a believer is that we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit because we've been regenerated, and now we can walk in newness of life because of Christ, because of His Spirit indwelling us, leading us, guiding us, conforming us to the image of Christ, convicting us, teaching us what the Word of God says so we can walk in obedience as we are supposed to. Not that the obedience saves us, but that is bearing, that's is bearing—that's part of us bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. And again, the argument is, where is the victory in this message that he's saying? Because if your answer is, well, it's everything's a demon. I don't see a lot of victory in that as opposed to someone coming to you and saying, I'm dealing with this issue. Okay, well, let's face it head on. This is a sin problem. And as a believer, this is what scripture says and how the ways you are to walk. And this is how you renew your mind. And this is not a quick and easy fix. And we know that sometimes there's people that deal with stuff for years but there's still victory in that because of Christ because he is our hope even he's our eternal hope so even if we face things in this world and we're dealing with things and struggles and difficulties and sin that we still have victory that that Christ has overcome these things and that we are not darkness that again if you read Ephesians particularly you're going to see that there is this distinction made between those that walk in darkness and those that walk in light there is no mixture <laughs> in that um, to say that there is is again it's diminishing the power of god it's diminishing the gospel it's diminishing what christ did on the cross it's diminishing true biblical deliverance
1: amen amen
2: so we're going to hear from isaiah again and this time he is going to be telling us that deliverance is just the start or the beginning um for the the christian so let's let's see what that says
4: deliverance is not an easy ticket, a get out of jail free card. You still need to have a a life of prayer. You still need to fast. You still need to consecrate yourself, live holy, walk before God. You still need to be involved in a local church. You still need to have these Christian practices. It's not just get delivered and you're good forever. Okay, Deliverance is just the start. But again, Jesus cast out demons everywhere. The disciples cast out demons. So we, as according to 2 Corinthians 5.17, are ambassadors of Christ. John 14.12, the same works I've done, you'll do an even greater. And so this is why we do it. We don't do it because we just decided one day we're gonna do it. We do it because we're walking in the path that Jesus paved. Stop listening to these YouTubers that have never done any deliverance teaching you, you don't need to do this. I'll, I'll obey Jesus. Jesus says I do. You say I don't. The disciples did. You say I shouldn't. I think I'm going to go with the Bible.
2: Yeah, I think I'm going to go with the Bible too.
1: <laughs> amen. Yeah. Sorry. No, no. Yeah, I'm going to go with the Bible as well. <laughs> which which is interesting because, you know, in that other clip that we watched, he, he even says very clearly that, you know, it's not about our story or anything like that. It's all about what God has said, okay? and And we can amen that. I I can even charitably be thankful that he's pointing people to, you know, being consecrated, living a holy life that honors and pleases God, and even be part of a local church. Okay. I can can appreciate that. You know, I appreciate that. We want to point out the things that they say that are good because we don't want anybody to think that we're lacking in charity and that they don't say anything ever any good. Okay. I appreciate that Isaiah said that. Okay. So there you go. I said something you know i'm giving uh i'm being charitable and i'm i'm just saying that you know that was a good point that he made okay he didn't say enough about why that is and the power of it but you know it was still a good point right he at the end he responds to those who are calling them out which would include me and Mm Todd, which is not the only time that uh and i could give examples here but this is just one example of us getting called out um get people like us who are calling them out they're feeling the need to say what they want to say which is their right okay um yep. but they have the ability to make statements but the question is is whether those statements are biblical again or whether they're not because again we believe that the bible is the final authority for faith and practice so so he quotes only two verses in that whole um i think it's 59 seconds um he he says talking about um second corinthians five seventeen. it says therefore if anyone is in christ he is a new creation the oldest past behold the newest come and, and we know what that is about it's about that we have been made new not because of ourselves but because of Christ like Don said it's because of the sufficiency of the person and work of Christ when he said it is finished in John nineteen thirty, 30. It, it was enough it was done it was signed it was sealed in the blood of Jesus um you know and then we know he was buried and he rose again and the veil was torn in two from top to bottom uh so that we could enter into the very presence of God um because he 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 was the final priest uh he paid the penalty for us and now he is our high priest he's our intercessor as even as Paul says he's our mediator in first 1 Timothy one fifteen between God and man um so you know th- this idea that uh we must engage in deliverance on the basis of that that's not what that means So we can just say no that's that's not a right handling of scripture but then he goes on and cites john 14 12 which says truly truly i say to you whoever believes in me will also do the works that i do and greater works than these he will do because i'm going to the father you know we we've heard this with the word of faith we hear it with the new apostolic reformation we we hear it right with these deliverance guys so what does this mean? Does it mean I, I get to do whatever I want to do? I just speak it and declare it and and uh oh yeah, I snap my fingers like a like a like, you know, in Aladdin and here comes here comes the, you know, the the genie out from his bottle. I mean, is is that what Jesus is talking about here? I mean, you just have to kind of, you know, uh laugh a little bit, but in in some ways it's not funny, but I'm just being, I'm just drawing this out a little bit for you, that, that this isn't what that means. Because some say, you know, that perhaps we, we can't do greater works than Jesus individually, but that corporally we're able to exceed the power and the things that Jesus did. Now, we see amazing things that the apostles did and, and that Jesus himself did, but what was he doing there? He was testifying of his own divinity, of his power over nature, because he's fully God and fully man. Um, you know, we see people raised from the dead through Peter and Paul. But we we have to say that this is not ever in the Bible. It's never a—this me- method was never—it um, was it was a, an event that, yes, it happened, but it was never normal. It was never an event that would always happen in the Bible, meaning that it was an exceptional event that demonstrated to the power of God in that particular time and to the message, it validated the message. And so we don't need that today because we have the 66 books that constitute the Word of God. Um, so if jesus meant that people would do greater miracles than he performed in the sense of displaying more power and more astonishing things than he did then obviously one of the works that jesus failed to perform was sound prophecy because we know that didn't happen nobody exceeded jesus works um and so we need to understand that these greater works they include the work of evangelism today they include the work of teaching the deeds of compassion the ministry of the the church that that the lord is using that he's the head over and that that began at pentecost and continues until he returns these works are greater not because they're more amazing i mean but because they will be greater in their worldwide scope and they're going to result in the worldwide uh, transformation of individual lives and societies.
2: Yeah, one more thing I wanted to to add to that, and I appreciate you covering that in John 14, because I know many of us heard that for years that we're in that about that we would do greater works. And I don't know of anybody that has done greater works in Jesus. I don't know anybody that's calmed storms. I don't know of anybody that's raised someone from the dead after four days. I don't know of anything that that they've done that uh, that's greater than Jesus. And so now looking at that in context, it's, not in quality, but in quantity because of the believers within the world. And, you know, the other thing to consider with 2 Corinthians 5, when you hear Isaiah say that we are ambassadors for Christ, well, the whole context of that is talking about the ministry of reconciliation, which is what Christ tells us to do as ambassadors of Christ. And and that is the gospel that is calling people to be reconciled to God um, by repenting and putting their trust in Christ to save them from the penalty of their sins, to be reconciled to to the ministry of reconciliation. Again, I'm not saying that they haven't said these b- things before, but it just it just seems that there is a plethora of them saying focusing on demons. Um, it would I think it's far better to be focusing on Christ, not to ignore demons and the demonic. We know that that most assuredly most assuredly that demons and satan exist Uh, so we don't want to go to the extreme of denying what scripture shows us about the demonic but what we do want to focus on as believers is is our savior and what he's done and what his word testifies of him and in resting in the hope of that and the instruction that he gives us and how to walk as believers
1: that's really good well, we have, uh, I want to use another example, because uh, Don and I have talked about, you know, why a Christian can't be demon-possessed. You know, we both have clearly shown from the scriptures that it, it is not a possibility. But I don't want you just to take it for from from my mouth, and I don't want you to take it just from Don's uh, mouth either. We, we're going to bring in somebody that has a PhD in um systematic theology um he is a professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary where he's taught for many years he he is a brilliant man he is a friend of mine he's been on this program before his name is Dr Stephen Willem Um, and here he's answering the question can a Christian be demon-possessed as you think of outside of
6: Christ Uh, Think of an Ephesians 2, chapter uh, one to three that describes our state in sin. Uh, In sin, it will speak of us as being dead in our sins. Uh, It will also speak of us being under the power of the evil one. And of course, that evil one there would be Satan and then you would think of demonic forces. So that in our sin, uh, we are not just sort of innocently doing it on our own, but we are part of the scripture will say uh, a world spirit uh, controlled by the prince of the air, Satan is real, demons are real. In our sin, they can uh, greatly influence us and even control us. And we see uh, in the gospels, uh, people that have gone to such an extent where there's controlled by uh, demons and Jesus has to cast those demons out. Now the question becomes, When we become Christians, is that possible still for us to have that kind of possession that you would see uh, in the gospels and even that kind of strong, strong uh, influence on us? My answer to that would probably be no. Now what I'm thinking there is that when you think of Christian salvation, Christian salvation is depicted in scripture as a transfer. It's a transfer from being in Adam and the entire age controlled by sin and death and the devil and being transferred into Christ. In Christ, we are no longer dead in transgressions and sins. We are born of the Spirit. We have new life. We are forgiven of our sins. We are joined to the Savior. We have the power of the Savior. Now. Indeed, we have to wait until his coming again when we are totally glorified and we will sin not again, yet to think of now in Christ those who are forgiven of sins and born of the spirit and have new life as being then possessed by a spirit, an evil spirit, a demonic spirit is quite unthinkable. In a fallen state, yes, but in Christ, no. But the scripture will also say that uh, Satan is, you think of 1 Peter 5, he's described as a a lion, a roaring lion. Uh, He attacks the church. Uh, The apostle Paul will say in Ephesians 6 that we wrestle not against just mere humans, flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And those principalities and powers in Paul aren't just human states and governments and so on as some have thought, they really I do refer to the demonic realm. So that we wrestle against them, but that doesn't doesn't mean that's the same as possession. So that the demonic stand against the church, they are trying to ultimately lead the church astray, and yet the church overcomes Satan by the blood of Christ, by the work of Christ. So can a Christian be demon-possessed? No. To be demon-possessed would mean one is outside of Christ, one is dead in their sins, one is under the power of the evil one. Can Christians, though, battle against uh, principalities and powers? Is Satan a roaring lion who's trying to deceive and lead us astray? Yes, but that's quite different than possession. And we have in Christ and by the Spirit, uh, we are told to, Peter says in 1 Peter 5, when he says uh, Satan is a roaring lion, he says, resist him, right? And we can resist him. We have power over him. Satan's power has been defeated at the cross and in the resurrection. Uh, he hold, no longer can hold death over our heads. He can no longer hold sin over our heads. We have been justified in Christ and we have the victory in him and uh, even though we still battle uh, in this world until the end, uh, we still will face trials and persecution and sufferings. Uh, Christ's church is victorious. The gates of hell cannot prevail against uh, individual Christians and the entire church. So we should take comfort that Satan is defeated by Christ and we wait for the time where he comes and will bring all things to the end in the meantime the church needs to be vigilant uh, as we know that we are already triumphant in christ
2: that was super helpful um i really enjoyed watching that because of the the points that he made and even uh some of the passages he brought up such as first peter 5 8 where peter's telling them you know be, be sober be vigilant for your adversary the the devil roams around as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour and then Peter even goes on to talk in there about the suffering of the believers so that uh, there are fellow fellow brothers that are suffering the same way they are so even in the context you can see of what the the devil's trying to do but again this is it paints the picture if i'm understanding it correctly it paints the picture that this is an outward fight that that this is not within you <laughs> This is the the devil, in metaphorically speaking, that's roaming around, trying to um, trying to to um, to destroy the church, and trying to um, to uh, even maybe impede the faith of believers, and trying to um, to uh, stop the advance of what God wants to do. Which we know that the, He can't; that that God is sovereign and all of that. But it does show us that it's an outward issue. And even when you think of James four seven too, where James encourages other believers: you know, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But before that, it says, "Submit yourself to Christ," because again, the reminder is: There's two domain, two um, kingdoms, if you will, or two domains. You can even either be under the dominion of Satan, or you can be under the dominion of Christ as your king. Uh, Christians don't have a middle ground, so <laughs> it, it just it. Scripture is just so helpful when we, when we look at it in context, and it should it encourages us and it gives us again this peace to understand who, to whom we belong and how to engage in spiritual warfare, um, and to to help us again know you know what Christ did was sufficient for us and and we don't have to worry that the battle's not from within with demons for believers the battle is from without.
1: Amen. Amen. Well, we have another uh, example of John and Lisa Brevere. They are well-known leaders, uh, teachers in many charismatic circles. And uh, they're going to talk about, they're having a conversation on their podcast. And they bring up a number of scriptures and they talk about this idea of legal rights. So let's take a look at that.
7: You
8: have a protection when you're in obedience. Yes. But when you deny... God's word or his his provision for protection in your life, and you partner with things that open the door to demonic things. Yeah. Uh he he takes legal action. That's what Paul was
7: life. talking about yeah. with the Corinthian church. Yeah. He was saying, Lest Satan get advantage of us, for we're not ignorant of his devices. Do you know what he was talking about specifically there? Unforgiveness. Mm-hmm. So Paul was telling them, hey, when you refuse to forgive, because Jesus said, Forgive us as we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. That's right. not a suggestion. That's right. That's the Lord's prayer. Jesus said, if you don't forgive, your heavenly father will not forgive you. Remember, he said that, okay, in Mark eleven. All right. So when we refuse to forgive, we give foothold to the enemy. Um, I will never forget, ever will I ever forget this. There was a um, I was at CBN years ago. Uh, Pat yeah. with Pat Robinson yeah. Terry muson and they're they're they have a chaplain there or or a guy who runs like the chapel for the whole thing he's kind of like the pastor of the staff. Back in those days, and he shared that there was a person who had come in that they were ministering to, and they just could not get this person free. The person wanted to be free. The person was a baby, baby Christian, wanted to get free, said, please, can you have your counselors pray for me? And he said, we were baffled until the Holy Spirit gave us a vision. And we saw that every time we prayed for him, this person was in a wind tunnel. Right? Mm. And or excuse me, not this person. We saw a demonic spirit, we saw like a wind tunnel, and a demonic spirit had a hold on a bar. And when we prayed, it was like a massive wind of the Holy Spirit went through, and the and the demon just had a, hung It on. had
8: a, a hold.
7: It just hung on. How yeah.
8: interesting. Okay. And,
7: and and the Holy Spirit revealed to them he's holding on forgiveness. Mm. So he asked him, and he said what well, he started saying it was something, I think it was his father or something like that. And they led him in a prayer to forgive. As soon as he forgave, they had another vision, and they saw the wind blow, and they saw that demon just gone like that. Yeah. So, So, it know, had
8: legal access, a legal hold. Yes. Because of the unforgiveness.
7: How about Fe- Ephesians? Paul says, don't let the sun go down in your wrath, right? Lest we give Satan a foothold. That's the exact translation in the NLT. A foothold. Can I
8: just say, I remember when we were early married, I, I, um. <laughs> I would if I didn't forgive you before we went to sleep at night. It was like I dreamed all night and was mad, got madder and madder and madder in the morning. I'd turn to John and be like, "You know oh what you gosh. did in my dreams." You were so yeah, upset. Yeah, it, at it me. was. It wasn't even a real thing, but because I had slept with that unforgiveness and that bitterness, it had taken over my mindset, had robbed me of my rest, and and we actually are not created for that.
7: You know, you know. So, Lisa, the Bible says the whole world, literally, the whole world is under the sway or the influence of the evil one. I mean, that's crazy. So, when you get born again, all of a sudden, you are free. You believe, you're part of the kingdom. Yep, you're part of the kingdom of God. You're technically free, but you have to drive out these enemies. Just like when God said, "Hey, that land is yours, Israel, but you got to drive out all these enemies."
2: Listening to, to him talk about this. Um, there is an appeal to an experience of a vision in order for someone to be free. And even using Ephesians four twenty six that talks about, uh, uh, give no, which I have the ESV, give no opportunity to the devil. Um, And I've heard some people say, give no place. And they'll say it's a geographical location. But when you look up that word, it has a few different meanings. And, Uh, The argument for deliverance ministry is made, well, you're giving the devil an actual place within you uh, when you listen to deliverance ministers. Now, I I know that the Bevere's are talking in a different way, but still they're applying that the demonic has some sort of hold to where if you don't forgive, then you're giving legal access, which I I would like a Bible verse for that, (laughs) where it says that we give demons as believers legal access to indwell us that I would like I'm still waiting for a bible verse for that. But uh, that's a, there's an appeal to a vision before and after ministering to this person. And so the the people listening to this are left with thinking well we have to to believe them because they they're saying this this vision was given to them and so this must be true instead of going back to again biblical discipleship and telling this person hey you know you need to forgive because unforgiveness is a sin it's not a demon it's a sin (laughs) um and and again just the whole use of that passage which i know you're going to talk about but it's just the whole appeal to subjective experience and using that as your your foundation for truth is it it leads into concerns and problems
1: yeah that's that's really well said well let's just look at you know we we've said that scripture has meaning and so uh does scripture mean what john is saying Uh, does their conversation in other words what i'm saying is their conversation edifying according to Ephesians 4 29 does it pass the truth test which is the most important test does it meaning that is the way in which john bevere is handling the word of god does it actually cohere with the meaning of, of what Paul and Jesus is actually saying. So let's take a look here, uh, starting with second 2 Corinthians 2:10 2, through 11, "Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we may not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Well, when we look at the context that starts at uh, verse 5 of second Corinthians 2, and it goes to verse 11 it's about the application of paul's example to the corinthians so what this section is teaching us about is that the majority of corinth uh corinthians had expressed their repentance by punishing the leader of the rebellion against paul and so paul is now calling them to follow his own christ-like example towards them by extending mercy to the offender lest satan have his way once again in the church now in verse 10 of second Corinthians 2. with the word forgive, what Paul is saying is that the Corinthians are to forgive because they have forgiven like uh, Matthew 6:14 through 15, Matthew 18:35 and Colossians 3:13 instructs cr- Christians. Now, in 2 Corinthians uh, 2.11, the designs of Satan are to destroy the mutual forgiveness, the love, the unity that is to characterize God's people as those who have been reconciled to God through Christ, as Paul teaches in the passage that we just looked at in 2 Corinthians 5.16-26. Uh, through 26. And in this way, Satan is aiming to dishonor God's own glory revealed in Jesus as the Son of God so john mentions matthew uh, 6 12 and 14 which all of these guys mentioned this um we could have i could have brought in uh derek prince on this because he has derek prince has extensive teaching on this but his teaching john's teaching is uh, an example of what derek would say and all of these guys say so um this uh, Matthew six twelve through 14 says, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. Now, I'm going to stop here before I explain this passage. And I'm going to say this. This passage has nothing to do with legal rights. It has nothing to do with giving Satan permission or access or a place or a foothold or legal rights at all. It has to do with our fellowship with God being interrupted or disrupted, but it does not affect our security. our security as we talked about is secure because of christ as romans eight thirty one through thirty nine says so Jesus isn't talking here about the need to legally have our sins forgiven over and over again because that already happened at the moment of initial saving faith, according to romans five one romans five nine Romans uh, 8 1 and Romans 10, 10 rather what Jesus is saying in Matthew six twelve, 12 is this is a prayer for the restoration of personal fellowship with God when fellowship has been hindered by sin as we see in Ephesians four thirty. those who have received such forgiveness are so moved with gratitude towards God that they are eager to forgive those who are debtors to them In fact, if we go on in verses 14 and 16, what Jesus is emphasizing is the importance of forgiving others, indicating that there is a direct relationship between having been forgiven by God and the forgiveness that his disciples of necessity must extend to others. So, as we talk about Matthew 6, 12, forgive your trespasses, it refers to the restoration of personal fellowship with God and not to initial saving faith. That means that... The interpretation offered by these guys is not biblically warranted it's it doesn't explain the passage at all and it's not what jesus is meaning i just want to say that john also mentions mark 11 24 and 25 therefore i tell you that whatever you ask in prayer believe that you have received it and it will be yours verse 25 whenever you stand praying forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses so whatever you ask here, it means that God delights to give good things to those who ask him, as Jesus says in Matthew seven, eleven, and is capable of granting any prayer, though we must ask with godly motives, according to James four three, and according to the will of God, as we see in first John five fourteen. Believe in and receive it, and it will be yours. That means that those who trust God for the right things in the right way can have confidence uh, in the truth of Philippians 4.19 that says that God will supply every need according to his riches in Christ Jesus, knowing that he will work, as Romans 8.28 and 32 says, all things together for good and will graciously give us all things. And so those teachers like John, they they misuse Mark eleven twenty. Uh, 24 through 25 suggesting that if uh, they pray for physical healing or some other request and if uh they can just have enough faith then they can have confidence that god has already done or what do whatever we ask god to do but we must always have the same perspective jesus had here which is confidence in the power of god and submission to the will of god revealed in the will of god i mean in the word of god uh, Mark 14, 36 says, Father, all things are possible for you, and yet not what I will, but what you will. So John is talking about legal rights. You know, we, we see that he uses a personal story to prove his theology, um, not scriptural engagement, not real scriptural exegesis. There's an appeal, as Don said, and as we saw, to experience divisions, to deal with deliverance. So that's extra biblical revelation that counters and undermines his even appeal to scripture so that denies uh, and minimizes the sufficiency of scripture and then we know that lisa talks about um legal rights uh, don't let the sun go down on your wrath that's that's in ephesians 4 uh 26 and 27 they use that to prove legal rights and they say that even though christians are converted they have to drive out demons so let's look at that really quick Ephesians four twenty six says be angry and do not sin do not let the sun go down on your anger now as Don and I were talking about this a couple things strike me uh, as Don was mentioning the first three chapters of Ephesians they're all describe uh, what Christ has done you know, you, you look at uh, Ephesians 1, you know, about uh, our, the sovereign electing power of God and, and what God did in Christ. And chapter 2, we see, you know, that we're saved by grace alone, the faith alone, and Christ alone. And that he broke down um, in the latter part of the chapter. He talks about how the dividing wall that, that separated Jews and Gentiles has, has been uh, because of Christ. We're one in him. And, and on and on. And so... Um, chapter four through six is all about you know what we're to do in light of those truths not just um that we can give up our security and give up our that we've been united to Christ but that we are his and he is ours and so so there's that that's the context we have to understand everything in context and then and then when we get to the this passage Paul's point here is that Christians be not consumed by anger, nor should one's anger even be carried into the next day so that it might give an opportunity for the devil. Now, the the, the they would argue that, you know, this means uh, a place, or that it means a place. And so it, they t- interpret that as a literal place. But a literal place um, isn't, it, it does mean a literal place in the Greek. But Paul isn't saying that, we're literally giving a place a foothold or again our legal rights to satan that's not what he means um but instead what paul is doing is he's he's talking about you know be angry he says and don't sin so there's righteous anger that is being you know we can get angry at, at the things that god dis displeases that displeases him like you know sex trafficking and abortion and um, sexual sin and murder and those those things that scripture clearly says, but we cross over the line there's a there 's a very thin thin and i mean thin line um only how thin that is I mean God knows only God knows really um, we cross over the line when 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 we start saying things like oh, i 'm going to do something you know uh, so we could be righteously anger, have righteous indignation, but then if our motive is is to do harm to that person or in any way, physically or emotionally, or with the words out of our own mouth, we've we've sinned. Um, but that doesn't that means then that we have to repent, not that we give Satan a a legal place, because again, the context doesn't warrant that that interpretation that they're offering, because the context is about things that are to be displayed in the life of the Christian. And and, and furthermore, I just want to say one thing in in verse uh, in in uh, Ephesians five one, he says that, that we're told to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we received. And even in verse twenty nine uh, of the same chapter in in Ephesians four, he says that we're to speak words that build up. So how does that make sense? If we're giving Satan a legal place and and a legal foothold, then how does that make sense in light of the context, in light of what Paul is meaning? Um, so we have to understand things in context and what they mean. Um, and and you know what uh we we do uh have as christians to be clear we do have what we call indwelling sin we have remaining sin and what that means is that we're not totally like jesus and so we have we have to repent and and repentance is not just a sorrow uh for your sin it's not just seeing it and then turning away it's being sorrowful it's seeing it as it is as described by god it's a it's a missing of the mark it's a crossing of the boundary it, it's a breaking of the commands of god and so it's, it's a cosmic treason as rc sprawl said and so we see this our sin and we turn away from our sin by turning to what christ has done in his death burial and resurrection that's why paul can say in colossians 3 by the way he, he talks about the works of the flesh in, in the first 11 verses and then in verse 12 he can say put off the old man and put on the new man. That's because the new man is who we really are in Christ, in union with him and in the Lord. So the words in the Lord, in him, in Christ, are Paul's way of saying, this is who you are. This is your identity. This is who you belong to. And then, um, so the idea here in in um, this this section is Paul's giving practical examples of how church members can build up Christ's body based on their real identity in Christ. So hopefully that's helpful.
2: Yes, thank you for sharing that Dave. That is very very helpful to to hear that and the breakdown of it and to apply it. So thank you for sharing that.
1: Absolutely. So we have one more we have one more clip and before I before I give this clip um as I've as I've been as we've been Don and I have been talking and and praying. The reason that I want to give this clip is because what it does is it powerfully illustrates what we've been talking about. The, Paul, Paul Washer is a very passionate preacher, so if you've never heard Paul preach, well, you're in for a treat because uh, he is. He's about as passionate as, as he gets, but he's passionate in the right way. He's passionate for the sake of truth. He's passionate for the glory of God. He's passionate because of the sufficiency of Christ revealed in the Word of God. And, and so he's going to talk with us. Um, this was a message, I believe it was delivered in 2017 at G3. Um, and yes, in at G3 Conference 2017. It's titled, Biblical versus Demonic Spirituality in the Church. And, and what this clip is gonna do is it's really gonna illustrate the difference between being grounded in the word and what that means versus those who don't. So let's hear from Paul now.
0: Or instruments of apostasy. Look at verse two. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. You need to understand something. I don't want to exalt my place or exalt the place of a preacher. But I want to tell you something. As God uses men to advance His kingdom through the proclamation of the truth, so the devil uses men to advance His cause against the kingdom of Christ. Now, I want, to, I want you to notice something from the book of Acts that Whenever the kingdom is advancing, it's because the Word of God is being proclaimed. You want to advance the kingdom? Proclaim, proclaim, proclaim the truth. But you need to understand that there are two lines on this battlefield, and one line has men of truth. They are men of truth, not by their own virtue or merit, but the election, the sovereignty, the grace of God. They are men of truth, and they must stand with the truth and stop playing games like little boys and devote themselves to know the truth and to proclaim it. And then on this side, there is another line. And they are proclaimers of lies, frivolity, maybe even good things, but not the best things of God. Now it says that they're liars because they do not speak the truth. Now, what does that mean? They do not speak according to what is written, and therefore they prove that they have no dawn. Young man, when you get up in the pulpit, no one needs to hear from your heart. They need to hear from God's Word. If you go on the mission field, let me share with you something. Someone called me years ago and said, I wanna come to the mission field. And I said, why? I just wanna give my life away. I said, young man, no one here in Peru needs your life. They need the word of God proclaimed to them. Liars, they are liars because they do not not speak according to what is written. They're hypocritical because they pretend to have a spirituality that is from God, but in actuality, at best, their spirituality is carnal or natural. And at worst, it's demonic. Now, again, how do you know if one's spirituality is from God? Because it conforms to what is written.
2: I couldn't help but when he was talking, and I had the privilege of hearing Paul Washer minister at G3 this year. That was my first time getting to hear hear him and to hear his passion for missions and for the gospel. It was really, it was really encouraging listening to this clip. I I couldn't help, but to, to think on, especially where he talks about, you know, there's always the focus on us and there is a sincerity in there to a certain degree that we want to, you know, have our lives given away for Christ or to, to, to do something. But again, it's always the focus on us and, uh, it's a challenging message when you hear, you know, you don't, you need to focus. No one needs your life. <laughs> they need the gospel. And I think that that's something to, to, to glean from that can be applied in what he's saying. Um, even in the deliverance ministry that there, there is always this focus of, well, God is in need of me and that God needs me to do this and this in order for me to have victory. And again, it's. It's taking our eyes off of Christ and it's putting our eyes on self and then believing that we do something in order to be delivered or to have victory um, and to be the bloodline breaker. And again, it's just this focus. I know I'm, I'm probably focusing a little on something a little different from this, but when I hear him say that, that's where my mind goes, is thinking there's such an emphasis in this movement on self. And that God needs you and that you need to do this and you need to do that. And then God will be able to move and God will be able to set you free and God will be able to heal you. And God will, you know, it's always God's secondary and your primary. And it's it's warped because we're not focusing on Christ and Him being the ultimate deliverer and the ultimate um um savior and that he again it's it's him he is preeminent and he should be in preeminent in the life of a believer it is not us that we look towards we don't look inward we don't look towards ourselves to save ourselves we look to christ
1: yeah amen well said you know um just just one My la- i guess this will be my last thought um you know when he's talking about preachers of the truth he's talking about those who are rightly handling the word of god they're doing as First Timothy three two says. They they are teaching. They're helping the people of God. They're rightly handing the Word of God as commanded. They're doing exactly what God has called them to do. They're being true shepherds that God has sent out. You know, God God desires to send out real, biblically qualified men into the field, and that's what Paul is calling for. But he's also calling out those who are in the field who aren't doing that. And that is equally as uh, equally as important to say, because, like I said, these guys are all pastors for the most part. They're all ministering the word. They're supposed to be um, the only thing that a pastor is to be able to do is to be able to teach, and they are not teaching the people of God. They are not ministering to the people of God. the The thing is, is um, we're living this. This what this clip does is it really exposes whether you're biblically grounded and you're rightly handling the word of god or whether you're not there is no middle ground Uh, jesus calls us in luke 9 23 and 27 to count the cost and to follow him jesus talks about a house divided against itself will not stand Um, that is that following jesus demands everything it demands that we follow him according to his word So Isaiah, Isaiah, he can say what he wants about being biblical and following the model of Jesus, but the model that he's advocating and that these guys are advocating, it minimizes the glory of Christ revealed in the word, and the whole Bible points to that end. So you're not being faithful to the Savior that you say that you're pattering your ministry on because you're not doing exactly as Jesus said to do, meaning that you're disobeying God. And you're doing exactly what Paul Washer said. And so I hope that I know that they listened and I know that they watch these things. So if you're watching, let me say something to you. I hope that you'll repent. Earnestly, my desire is that you would repent. And your repentance would look like you resigning from your post for a time and learning the truth learning how to interpret the word of God I long for you to interpret the word of God rightly There would mean if you would rightly handle the word there would be no there would be no reason for me to be speaking up about these things if you were rightly handling the word of God but you're not and you're purposely purposely doing it you're purposely leading the people of God astray and you call yourself a pastor that's the most egregious thing. That is a crime against the word. It is to rightly handle the word of God is a crime against the God who made you and the only one who can save you. And not only is it a crime against him, it's a crime against other people because you've been charged to shepherd the people of God by the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. And so that's why I get passionate about this. If if there's a why out there, by the way, just in case anybody is wondering, that's my why. That's why I will not stop. I will not stop speaking about this. I will not stop supporting those who are speaking out against it. I will platform those who are speaking out against this movement. I will continue to publish people uh, that are speaking out against it, uh, both in articles and books. And we're going to have a book. We're going to have two books. Well, who's to say that we'll have more than that? I don't know. God does. But if it comes down to it, we're going to publish. We're going to keep talking about it. We're going to keep uh, speaking out against this because truth really matters. There is meaning and truth can be known because God has revealed himself. And that is to say that the word of God alone is enough and that Christ in the word is enough. And so... I just want to say if you're in this movement, if you're if you're in this movement, you're impacted by these teachers, you're not being taught the truth. Come out from them. Repent and return to your savior. Return to the king. He alone is enough. If you don't belong to him, do what Acts 16 31 says and believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. If you do belong to him, then repent of supporting, of sending your money, of spending your energy, of wasting your time supporting these men. It and, and, and if you're if you're on the fence about speaking up about this, I hope that if you're a biblically informed, a biblically grounded, and biblically shaped Christian, that you will speak up about this and that you will join, join us in speaking out for the honor and glory of Christ as revealed in scripture, because truth matters. And we believe truth but we're not only supposed to speak the truth paul says in ephesians 4 15 we're speaking in love so those are my last thoughts don do you have any last thoughts before we close
2: no i just say amen to what to what you said and and echo that sentiment and i I do want to say i do want to say this is that well two things let me say this too quickly Uh, uh the first thing is is that uh i was someone who was involved In this type of belief system for almost two decades of my life and continuing to uh, do different things and participate in deliverance ministry and participate in different aspects of it, traveling overseas and doing that. So this whole argument that Isaiah and others may present in saying, well, don't listen to these people because they don't they don't even do deliverance. They've never even done it. Well, (laughs) that's not true. For me, I've I participated in it, and I'm not the only one. There's many others. So that that argument doesn't stand up. Um, and just because I and, and others are saying something doesn't mean that we diminish what true deliverance is. The second thing I want to say is that I try to make a point of not attacking someone, um, always addressing the teaching and looking at it in accordance with Scripture. and. My desire is to see um, those that would teach falsely and bring reproach on the name of Christ with, through their teaching. My desire is to see them repent. I don't want anyone to to uh, perish. I don't want I don't people to be condemned. Um, I recognize the grace and the mercy that that God extended to me in my own error in falsely prophesying. And doing the things that i did and following false teaching and my desire is to see others repent and and turn back to the christ turn back to christ and the truth of his word and um i sincerely mean that i i I want to see those that follow these people and i want to see those that teach this to repent and i know not all will but my desire is that they would because I I want nothing more than for God's mercy to be extended to them and that they would turn back to the truth of his word so that he he can truly be glorified in their lives.
1: Amen, Don. Well, thank you for joining us on this episode. Uh, We're excited to continue uh, to be working on this book, and uh, we'll just continue on and encourage you guys to join us uh, in speaking out in whatever platform and whatever way God would God would give you. So thank you for listening or watching this episode of Equipping You in Grace. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app